Welcome to the Arthroscopy Association's Arthroscopy Journal podcast. The views expressed in this podcast do not necessarily represent the views of the Arthroscopy Association or the Arthroscopy Journal. Welcome everyone, I'm Dr. Justin Arner from the Stedman Clinic and Stedman Philippon Research Institute in Vail, Colorado. Today I have the distinct privilege of speaking with my mentor and someone who really needs no introduction, Dr. Peter Millett, surgeon at the Stedman Clinic and Chief Medical Officer of the Stedman Philippon Research Institute in Vail, Colorado. Dr. Millett was the author of the paper entitled, Clinical and Imaging Outcomes After Arthroscopic Superior Capsular Reconstruction with Human Dermal Allograft for Irreparable Non-Pseudoparalytic Posterior Superior Rotator Cuff Tears, a minimum two-year follow-up, which is currently in press for publication in the Arthroscopy Journal and is available online. Welcome, Dr. Millett, and thank you for joining me. Thanks a lot, Justin. It's great to be here. It's really an honor to be part of this podcast. Great. Let's get right to it. What are Dr. Millett's indications for SCR in 2020? Well, that's a great question. I think <clears throat> SCR is really an innovative new procedure, which um, I, I was somewhat skeptical of, about whether it would help patients as much as it has. And um, I've been quite pleased with the results that I've had for my patients. Um, this has uh, filled a, a void uh, where we had young patients with uh, massive rotator cuff tears, and we weren't really sure what to do with them. Uh, so for me, it's, it's currently a, a massive posterior superior rotator cuff tear that's technically irreparable no matter what technique you use to try and repair it, margin convergence or other techniques, and where the patient has um, at least three out of five uh, strength. If they're totally pseudoparalytic, I, I usually have not recommended an SCR, but if they have um, three out of five or even three minus out of five abduction or forward flexion strength, then I think that they're a candidate for this uh, procedure. Uh, one of the questions that comes up is about the subscapularis, and typically if the subscapularis is intact, it's preferable. Um, if there's a repairable subscapularis tear, then um, I think that they're also a candidate for this procedure. Do you have any uh, things like age limits or arthritic scenarios that you consider when you're looking to do an SCR? Yeah, of course. That's, those are great points. Uh, clearly, if somebody has advanced osteoarthritis of their shoulder, then I think SCR will not be effective. And I think in those cases, an arthroplasty is the preferred treatment strategy or reverse uh, shoulder replacement. Um, age is a relative contraindication. I think in my experience, patients over the age of um, 65, I, I frequently will counsel them more towards an arthroplasty. Uh, but I have done some patients in their late 60s or even early 70s who were very active and physiologically younger than their chronological age. But typically this is for patients between 45 and, and 60 or 65 who are active, uh, who have uh, no arthritis and have an irreparable posterior superior rotator cuff tear. One of the most interesting findings I found in your study was that the number of previous surgeries uh, that people had done correlated with their final ASES score. Do you think we should be more aggressive doing SCRs primarily in 
patients with questionable rotator cuffs that maybe aren't repairable? Um, that's something I've been interested in. Uh, one, of the, one of the things I started to uh, question was whether we should expand the indications for SCR, uh, particularly with patients who had massive tears that maybe they were technically repairable using advanced techniques and the tissue quality was poor. Uh, recently, we just did a study looking at this where we compared the results from SCR versus patients who had massive cuff tears that were repairable using margin convergence techniques. Um, so they weren't necessarily anatomically repairable, but we could cover the, 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 hum the greater tuberosity with tissue. And what we found was that the results were equally as good in both groups. So it, to me, that suggests that if the, t if the patient has tissue there, uh, then you should use their own tissue. Um, if not, then I think SCR uh, would, be a, would be the preferred strategy. We also looked at a group of patients who had um, reverse shoulder arthroplasty and compared those with SCR, and we found equivalent results. So... I think you can get equivalent results, at least in my hands, with a technically repairable one, even if you have to use advanced strategies. If you don't have tissue and they're a younger patient, use an SCR, and then if they're an older patient, um, go for a reverse. That makes a lot of sense. Like, like a lot of things, keeping uh, patients on anatomy typically is the best approach. I noticed that almost all your patients had MRIs in your study. Are you doing that on most of your SCR patients. Can you talk a little bit about healing? I know you reported about, about that in your study as well. Yes, um, we typically um, get follow-up ultrasounds in all of our patients at six to eight weeks on anyone who's having a rotator cuff repair. Since this was a new uh, procedure, I felt that it was important to study not just the clinical outcomes, but also the structural outcomes. So this was uh, specific for this cohort of patients that we got MRIs on all the patients postoperatively at uh, around an eight-week time period, between eight and 12 weeks, we would get an MRI on them to see what the um, structural integrity of the allograft was. And I think that the, the purpose of that was really because this was a new technique and wanted to understand if there were any potential adverse effects of this wanted to understand whether it was actually doing what we thought it was doing, which is acting as a static stabilizer for the superior head. So this was the reason we got all the MRIs on the patients postoperatively is really to, to understand the procedure. And I think with, with the introduction of new technologies and new procedures, I think we're obligated to really follow and study those patients carefully to make sure that, you know, first, that we're doing no harm, and second, to really understand what is happening biomechanically and clinically for these patients. I saw that you reported 100% of the grafts were intact on the humerus and about 81% on the glenoid and 76 in the mid-substance, but there was no difference in outcome scores for those that healed versus didn't heal. Do you think the graft heals better to the humerus for some reason, or do you have any thoughts about why that is, and does humeral healing is that the only thing that really matters, or does healing really matter at all? I don't know the answer to that. Intuitively, it seems that healing would be important biomechanically to uh, depress the humeral head and act as a static stabilizer. It seems that we would want to have the graft stay intact and for it to heal to both the humeral and the glenoid sides. To me, it, it, 
it makes some sense that the weak link would be the glenoid side. On the humeral side, we have double row fixation. In this series, we use a speed bridge construct, which has been shown clinically to be uh, very uh, durable with low retail rates, has been shown in the lab to be biomechanically very strong. So I think the humeral side, we have a lot of surface area for contact for the graft to heal, and we have a strong construct. On the glenoid side, uh, we have a single row of fixation. With multiple anchors, we've gone mostly to three anchors now to improve the strength, but it's only a single row construct. So it seems like that would be the weak link. And then the other area, some of them ruptured in mid-substance, which would suggest that there's some, in some settings, about, I guess it was about 19% of the cases, the graft ruptured mid-substance, and that would suggest that there's not incorporation biologically uh, of the graft over time. So maybe uh, as we study these uh, in the future, we'll, um, we'll be able to improve on that. Uh, I certainly think that our goal is to try and get anatomic um, structural healing of the graft. We did a, a study which has been published in arthroscopy where we did a retrieval analysis and the, the mechanical properties of the graft actually change and the graft becomes weaker um, over time and um, vascularization occurs uh, peripherally and enters towards the central portion of the graft. So that process of uh, uh, capsularization or where it becomes a, a superior ligament takes time for that graft and um, I think over time hopefully we'll be able to understand that process better. Yeah, that was a really insightful article. It's the article from October 2019 uh, journal of the Arthroscopy Association which definitely recommend reading histology and a lot more details about that retrieval so it was really interesting. What would you say your gestalt would be about how these graphs would look longer term on MRI and longer term follow-up? I know that's a question that everyone's still kind of curious about. I know short term we've had good results with auto and allograft. Maybe we're going a little bit thicker. Kind of tell us about the development of that and what your thoughts are long term. I think that's a great question, Justin, um, and I, I don't know the answer to that. I, I know that the uh, inventor of the procedure, Teru Mihada, used autographs. Um, he used autograph fasciolata, which was about six to eight millimeters thick. He showed a, um, in some studies perhaps a higher healing rate with autograft. Um, certainly there's some donor site morbidity to harvesting a, a fasciolata graft uh, from the patient. Um, I've used those in the past and there is certainly morbidity from that. Having an off-the-shelf uh, option is, is ideal and preferable. If it achieves the same results. Maybe going forward, we may look towards a thicker graft or a stiffer graft. I, we're looking at this in the lab to try and understand, is it just purely graft thickness? Is it the tension that's applied? Is it uh, the changes that occur in that graft over time? There's a lot of factors which, um, which probably contribute to the to whether it heals and to the biomechanical properties that occur over time. Um, but I, I don't think I can give you a good solid answer at this point. What I'd like to do is, is put the graft in so that it's fairly tight at time zero. I, I personally like to tension the graft in situ um, by where I place my sutures so that I get a, a good amount of tension on the graft so that it can have 
kind of a reverse trampoline effect and pre- prevent superior elevation of the humeral head. Um, and then over time, you know, the process of uh, ligamentization of that graft or as the graft is incorporated, the mechanical properties from our retrieval study suggested it changes. Um, and I think only with further studies are we going to know how it changes. I can tell tell you that uh, the MRI appearance also changes over time as the as that graft incorporates as well. So you mentioned some of the pearls that you had in your study and things that you've changed or or really developed. You're putting an extra anchor on the glenoid and doing the double row speed bridge technique on the humeral side. Can you tell us a few more of your pearls, uh, such as do you fix the cuff to the graft or do a marginal convergence above the graft? Do you repair the rotator interval or anything else you've really changed over the years while doing these? I think there's a lot of unknowns with this. I can tell you what I what I do and, um, you know, the results here. Are, I've studied my results so that I can understand that, understand them and hopefully if we change something, we'll be able to see whether it makes a difference. But um, I prepare the humerus really well so that there's a nice bleeding surface. I prepare the glenoid really well um, so that there's a nice bleeding surface for, the, for healing. Uh, I do not usually remove the labrum because I think that will provide some s- uh, support against uh, superior translation. If the labrum is severely degenerated, then I will remove it. But in most cases, I just uh, re- remove the bone on the superior glenoid tubercle. I usually will use three anchors medially on the glenoid, uh, one at 12 o'clock and then one at 10 o'clock and one at 2 o'clock, tensioning the graft uh, carefully. Um, I'll fix it laterally uh, under tension. Usually the graft is about 35 to 40 millimeters and uh, medial to lateral. Uh, Sometimes it can be up to 45 in a bigger patient. Um, And I'll try and get good tension and I'll try and get 15 millimeters of graft coverage on the on the humeral side. I will close, uh, in addition to doing a, a speed bridge laterally, I also do margin convergence to bone sutures, uh, repairing the infraspinatus to the graft uh, at the articular margin around the bare area. And then I'll also do margin convergence to bone using my medial anchor for the, uh, the upper portion of the subscapularis. Uh, and then uh, typically I also close the posterior interval with an additional suture or two uh, with side-to-side sutures closing the infraspinatus or teres minor to the graft posteriorly. Uh, I usually do not close the rotator interval uh, any more than just at the um, right where the subscap uh, comes to the bicipital groove. I don't, I don't close the, the anterior interval any more than that. Uh, I try, as I mentioned, I try and get good tension on the graft so that if I push up on the humerus, there's, um, it's, it stabilizes the humerus from superior elevation. Uh, I also use, uh, usually will use PRP postoperatively. I will frequently do a, an acromioplasty, and uh, if there's a large critical shoulder angle, then I'll also do a, a lateral acromioplasty to try and uh, correct the critical shoulder angle back to uh, approximately 35 to 38 degrees. Are you doing biceps tenodesis on most of these patients as well? Uh, yes, I usually will do a biceps tenodesis if the biceps tendon has any degeneration, if the pulley's torn, which it usually is, uh, or if there's a slap tear. So most of these patients will have a biceps tenodesis. Many of these cases, however, 
are revision cases and they may have already had a tenotomy or tenodesis. So uh, my preference for biceps is a, a subpectoral biceps tenodesis. And talking about postoperatively, about your PT protocol, can you tell us a little bit about that and how that differs from your massive rotator cuff repairs? I know you like to be pretty aggressive. And then also, if you do a subscap repair, does that change anything for you? Uh, yeah, Justin, good questions. The, um, the, ma- the massive tears, if the, t- if the tissue quality is, is poor, then I'll, it'll be similar to an SCR. If the tissue quality is good and I have a secure repair, then I'll start moving the patient fairly early. With an SCR, what I've found is that the patients actually don't have that much pain. Uh, so there's a tendency for the patients to move their shoulders a little bit more prematurely. So actually, we go more slowly with this with this group of patients. We immobilize them typically for, for five to six weeks in a, in a sling protected. They can come out and do some hand, wrist, and elbow motion and some pendulums. But at five to six weeks postoperatively, that's when they'll start passive motion. At six to eight weeks, they'll start active and active-assisted motion. And then we usually won't let them get back to strengthening until about 10 to 12 weeks with return to sports being closer to five to six months. So it's a, more, it's a, it's a slower progression than with our uh, typical rotator cuff repair. Great. So getting back into the nuts and bolts of your study, really the really novel and big addition that your study shows to the literature is showing up how these SCR patients uh, do with athletic activities. I know you have a really athletic and active population. So what are your thoughts of one finding in your study that showed that there wasn't really a significant increased or improvement in range of motion, but they had a huge increase in sports participation, satisfaction, and a really large increase in outcome scores, and which all met the MCID. So what are your thoughts about that? Range of motion wasn't really improved that much, but they really did well clinically. Yeah, I think that's a that's part of the selection process. As I mentioned earlier, I, I don't haven't used this procedure that frequently or at all for patients with pseudoparalysis. So most of these patients were painful and weak, but they had active elevation of their arms. So therefore, you're not seeing a big difference in their range of motion, but they were dissatisfied with their shoulder function because they had active lifestyles or their occupational demands were of such a level that they couldn't work, um, and they also had pain. So the, the main indication for this procedure is really to decrease pain and to improve function uh, as measured by strength and return to occupational and recreational activities. So I think it's probably the, the reason that we don't see a, a change in the range of motion is because most of these patients had decent range of motion to begin with. Um, you know, if, if their subscap's torn, we had, ver- we had uh, modified their rehab a little bit to protect the subscap. But most of these patients, we we were able to get them back to high levels of function and activities. Um, You could question whether this is is this just a placebo effect. Um, I I don't know the answer to that because we don't have a control group. It's just a retrospective cohort study. But the the interesting thing was that the minimally clinically uh, important difference was met in so many of these outcome scores. And... That, to me, suggests that there was something other than just the placebo effect of the procedure. 
Right. It was pretty striking, the activities that the patients were able to get back to. And I, you're right, I think patient selection is probably a lot to do with that. Uh, there are a lot of different treatment options for these patients. So really to wrap this up, what would you say the main takeaways from this article would be or what you really want our listeners to know or any other pearls about patient selection? Yeah, I think that SCR is a, is a, a novel technique. It's really f- going to fill a nice uh, niche for the shoulder surgeon. I, I think this is a very technically challenging procedure. I think we still have a lot to learn, so we have to carefully study it and we have to compare it with our uh, with other uh, procedures that would be options for uh, massive irreparable rotator cuff tear, such as tendon transfers, such as reverse shoulder arthroplasty. But I think the nice thing about it is it's a non-arthroplasty option. It doesn't burn any bridges. It's arthroscopic. It seems like the complication profile is favorable. The outcomes are, are favorable. Uh, and I'm hopeful that through further technical advances that we'll learn more about the procedure and we'll be able to make it more durable and more reproducible for our patients because unfortunately, there's a growing number of patients um, who have technically irreparable rotator cuff tears who are young and active who want to get back to an active lifestyle. And I think this this uh, option really uh, hopefully will, you know, will evolve and fill that fill that void that we currently have in our treatment armamentarium. It certainly offers something for those active patients that we didn't have before. Thank you so much for sharing your thoughts with us today, Dr. Millard. I'd really like to thank you on behalf of our listeners for all of your innovations that have really drastically improved our field. And as always, your really high-quality research. So thank you so much. Justin, thanks a lot. It's great to be here. Um, it's great to help support the arthroscopy podcast. I love uh, working with people like you that are young, uh, bright minds that are trying to solve problems as well. And I I really am glad that our contributions can help uh, patients uh, and also help the listeners of this podcast. Thank you so much, Dr. Millett. Dr. Millett's article entitled Clinical and Imaging Outcomes After Arthroscopic Superior Capsule Reconstruction with Human Dermal Allograft for irreparable non-pseudoparalytic posterior superior rotator cuff tears, a minimum two-year follow-up, currently is in press for publication in the Arthroscopy Journal and is available online at www.arthroscopyjournal.org. Thank you for joining us.